as a relationship between King Charles I and the English Parliament was breaking down in the early 1640s, and Parliament began to consider the potential of raising an army for the defense of Parliament against the king, one of the members of the House of Commons, who was a lawyer named Bulstrode Whitelock, offered some words of caution to the House. In his speech to the House, he said, It is strange to note how we have insensibly slid into this beginning of a civil war by one unexpected accident after another, as waves of the sea which have brought us thus far, and we scarce know how, but from paper combats, by declaration, remonstrances, protestations, votes, messages, answers, and replies, we are now come to the question of raising forces and naming a general and officers of an army. You will hear other sounds besides those of drums and trumpets, the clattering of armor, the roaring of guns, the groans of wounded and dying men, the shrieks of deflowered women, the cries of widows and orphans, and all on your account, which makes it the more to be lamented. Pardon, sir, the warmth of my expression on this argument. It is to prevent a flame which I see kindled in the midst of us that may consume us to ashes. The sum of the progress of civil war is the rage of fire and sword and, which is worse, of brutish men. What is the issue of it? No man alive can tell. Probably few of us here now may live to see the end of it. Bullstrode Whitelock was offering a word of caution for brashly rushing headlong into a civil war. He was essentially saying, we need, to, we need to think about this. This could go down very badly in the end. And his great wisdom, Solomon said, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out, Proverbs 17, 14. Now tonight we look to Judges chapter 12. And in it, we will see that it would have been much better for the men of Ephraim had they abandoned their quarrel with Jephthah before it broke out. It was a quarrel that led to their ruin. So let's look first to Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, the first half of the chapter. So Judges chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon when I called you, and you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they had said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords, of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over. The men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 
42,000 of Ephraim. Now, Judges 12, of course, follows on the heels of Judges 11. Judges 11, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the victory of Jephthah over the sons of Ammon. And how that victory, though, was only very briefly mentioned in the text in that it was overshadowed by the tragic vow of Jephthah and the manner in which he fulfilled that vow in regard to his daughter. But the tragedy which surrounds Jephthah is not over yet at the end of chapter 11. And so after the battle with the sons of Ammon, the men of Ephraim gather themselves together and they cross from their territory on the west side of the Jordan back over to the east side of the Jordan so as to confront Jephthah at the town of Zaphon. And so why the, why the confrontation? Well, it's because they didn't get their share of the wartime glory. So they ask the question in verse 1, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? It was their pride that was offended. They wanted to join in the battle, and now it was too late. The sons of Ammon had already been vanquished. There's no more fight to engage in. And this behavior of the Ephraimites was much like their behavior toward Gideon. If you remember back in Judges chapter 8, back in chapter 8 verse 1, after Gideon had defeated the Midianites and was chasing the fugitives from that battle, the men of Ephraim came out and asked him, what is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? The same cultural dynamic and tensions were in play in both cases because in both cases, the victorious judge was from the tribe of Manasseh and in both cases, the Ephraimites were jealous of not getting what they felt was their share of the action. Now, Back in Genesis 48, Jacob had blessed Ephraim, who was Joseph's younger son, over Manasseh, who was Joseph's older son. And Ephraim seemed jealous here in the book of Judges, as it were, to retain that honor, that honor that was, was placed on them by receiving the greater blessing from, from Jacob. This kind of ambition and vanity seems to have been somewhat normal for the tribe of Ephraim. And we don't know the full extent of everything necessarily that they said to Gideon back in chapter 8 or what they said to Jephthah here in chapter 12, but at least based on what we find in the text, it seems that their words are, are actually elevated and more angry here in chapter 12 than they were back in chapter 8. Now Gideon was able to turn aside their wrath with gentle words, but here the hostile words of the men of Ephraim, they, they say there in verse 1, we will burn your house down on you. In our terminology, them's fighting words, right? Why, why, why do you go up to someone and say, we will burn your house down on you and not expect that, that, that they're going to just lay over and take this well? Jephthah responds in verse 2 that he actually did send a call out to Ephraim to come and help him, but they didn't, they didn't show up. And so as he continues in verse 3, he says, When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands, crossed over to the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why have you come up this day to fight against me? He said, I did what you are upset about. I, I did ask you to come. You just didn't come. I went over and did the fighting, and now why are you trying to fight me? Jephthah wasn't looking for any more of a fight, but the Ephraimites keep at it. We see there, Words directed against Jephthah and the men of Gilead there in verse 4. They said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. Now this is what we might call a tribal slur. They're reproaching 
the Gileadites as though they are essentially a basket of deplorables. Matthew Henry wisely noted, it is an ill thing to fasten names or characters of reproach upon persons or countries, as is common, especially upon those that lie under outward disadvantages. It often occasions quarrels that prove of ill consequences, as it did here. And indeed, it did prove of ill consequence. The ill consequence, of course, was the fighting that follows. Verse 4 indicates that it was because of these words, these words that were directed against the Gileadites and Jephthah, that Jephthah gathered then the men of Gilead, and they fought Ephraim and defeated them. And in addition to the battle on the field, this was followed by the seizing of the fords of the Jordan, the places where the Jordan River could be crossed. The men of Gileadites seized those fords, and the Ephraimites are now cut off from their territory. They had crossed the Jordan over to the east side to, to get to Jephthah. Now the way back is guarded by the men of Gilead. And the uh, men of Gilead are not about to take this laying down. They had fought the good fight against the Ephraimites on the battlefield, and now they're not going to let people trying to get home get home. And they're not about to let themselves be fooled by Ephraimites who tried to pass themselves off as something else. And so they set up this test of dialect, as it were. They would ask the would-be river crosser if he was an Ephraimite, and if the answer came back in the negative, as uh, we would assume that eventually these Ephraimites would have gotten on to this, hey, this is not, this is not going well at the river crossings. You need to try to uh, present yourself as something else. And they would demand that the river crossers say the word shibboleth. Now, in context, the word itself makes perfect sense. Shibboleth means river or flowing stream. That's what they were trying to get across was a river or a flowing stream. And if the man said shibboleth, then that was a giveaway. Now we, we understand this dynamic. We know that different English-speaking countries speak the language differently. We know that different regions of our own country speak the language differently. I once knew a man from New Hampshire who was describing an observation that he had made in the newspaper, and his way of expressing that was to say, I saw it in the paper. Now, I'm sure that I have my own verbal idiosyncrasies as well. One time when Ruby and I were dating, I tried to give an impersonation of Martin Lloyd-Jones in his, in his Welsh accent, and Ruby said that I, that I lost my accent at, at that point. And so, like I say, I'm sure, sure I've got my own verbal idiosyncrasies. It happens to all of us in some way or another. But in this case, the mispronunciation proved deadly. And in the end, the total body count from Ephraim was 42,000. 42,000 dead Ephraimites. Dead for what? Dead for wounded pride and being mouthy. Now, as I was growing up, there was a sense in which a man named Sam Fletcher was almost like an uncle to me. Not in every sense, but in some ways. Sam worked for my dad and my grandpa on the, the family nursery, worked from before when I was born up until I was 17. And as I grew into my teenage years and began working in the business more and more, I enjoyed working with Sam and talking to him, and there would sometimes be some friendly and, and good-natured banter that would take place some of the time. And I, I can't remember exactly what I said to Sam one day as we were together, but Sam replied to me that the Bible says you're supposed to take care of your body. And talking that way to me is more dangerous than cigarettes. And so it was this, this friendly and, and good-natured banter, but 
Isn't that the kind of talk, the kind of talk that is more dangerous than cigarettes that was employed here by the men of Ephraim in our text? Now, to be fair, we may wonder if Jephthah overreacted in his response. Did he? Well, perhaps, but at least in regard to the initial fight, he may not have had much choice. These guys showed up and said, we're going to burn your house down on you, and they've got a gang of guys who could likely have done the job. The first round of battle may just have been self-defense. As to the slaughter at the fords of the Jordan, I think it's a little bit more ambiguous as to the righteousness of that action. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, whether Jephthah is to be praised for this, I know not. Perhaps he saw it to be a piece of necessary justice. As for myself, I'm not entirely sure that Jephthah's response was uh, sinless. Perhaps it was, I don't know. One way or the other, there's a pile of dead bodies, and the cause of it was pride and vanity and being mouthy. James has a lot to say about this kind of thing. So he asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, he says, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And yet again, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you harbor bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Brothers and sisters, this is where our wickedness can lead to. Our anger, pride, and wicked words can have horrible consequences. Obviously, this is not the norm. Most of our outbursts of angry words, most of our vanity and so forth, by God's grace, does not even leave one dead person in its wake. By God's grace. Most of the time, that does not happen. But let us learn here a lesson from this extreme case of the devastating consequences that accompany our pride and our wickedness. There might not be a body count, but there might be a toll or a series of tolls taken on relationships with our spouse, with our family, with our children, with our friends, with our fellow church members, with our co-workers, and so on. The lesson to be learned is abandon the quarrel. Bridle your tongue. Obviously, there are difficult conversations that sometimes must happen and need to happen, and we must not shy away from them. Obviously, there are some battles that must be fought, but wounded pride and vain ambition is nothing to fight for. It is rather something to mortify and something to get rid of. And connected with this is another useful lesson, namely that we need to be thankful for the victories that the Lord gives to others, victories that he gives to others without our being involved. Because isn't there something in us that would love to be 
the superstars in some way or another. We'd love to be the superstars in the kingdom of God. We would love to be the ones who are successful in evangelism. We would love to be the ones who are fruitful in discipling others. For those of us who preach and teach, our vanity would be gratified if we were the ones who were on the speaking tours, if we were the ones preaching at conferences or things like that. We need to take a lesson here from Judges chapter 12 that we ought to be thankful for the victory that God gives to others. We need to be thankful for their success in evangelism and discipleship and the fact that their ministry platform has been used to bless and edify others. And this extends also into the the realm of the workplace and, and so forth. We might like to be the ones who are always coming up with the ability to solve the problem or that we're always the ones who are making the most sales, or whatever the case might be in the, in the workplace, and maybe we're not always the person doing that. Well, still, we ought to be thankful for the victories that others are able to win. Contrast the attitude of Ephraim here with that of Paul in his preaching, when he says in Philippians 1.18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul was thankful even for people who were trying to stir up trouble for him while he was in prison, as long as they were preaching the truth about Christ. Contrast the pride of Ephraim with the great humility of the evangelist George Whitfield, who said, Let my name be forgotten. Let me be trodden under the feet of all men, if Jesus may thereby be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. So let's take to heart the admonition of Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now let's look back to the text and we'll consider the remainder of the chapter beginning in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel after him. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family, and he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. Now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel after him. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys and judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, we won't spend long on this succession of judges here. We don't know much about these men, and that's all right. We know as much as the Lord would have us to know. As Dale Ralph Davis observed, there are no miracles here unless Ibzan's having 30 sons and 30 daughters and apparently retaining his sanity qualifies for such. That might be a miracle. (laughs) Now, some have made the observation, the interesting detail, that Jephthah, with his only daughter, And she, never marrying, stands in stark contrast to the judge who came before him, Jer, back in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, and the judge who came after him, Ibzan. Jer is said to have had 30 sons. 
Jephthah has his one daughter, and she never marries. And then after him comes Ibzan with 30 sons and 30 daughters. And he's, it's noted that he is very careful to arrange marriages for, for all of them, for his sons and for his daughters. God's providential dealings are certainly mysterious. He doesn't give to all equally. To Jer and to Ibzan, a multitude of family. To poor Jephthah, one daughter, and she, by his foolishness, never marries. It's also been observed that in these accounts of the later judges, there are no statements about the land having rest. Earlier in the book of Judges, uh, like, for instance, after, after Gideon or after the, uh, the work of Ehud, there were these kind of statements that the land was, was undisturbed or that the land had rest or had peace. The statement in chapter 8, verse 28, after, after Gideon, is the last of those statements that appear in the book of Judges. 8.28 says, And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, if the absence of such statements has significance it may indicate that the situation in Israel was increasingly unraveling as you go throughout the period of the judges. Another observation which has been noted here is that these men served as judges, served comparatively relatively short tenure as judges, and then died and judged no more. Now, this is not surprising to us. We know how this world operates. People come, they appear on the scene, do their work for a while, fade away, die, and are no more. But let's allow the short tenure of these men and the lack of any kind of information that the land was undisturbed during their rule point us to the ruler who will bring peace and who will rule not just for eight years or ten years, but forever. It was prophesied of Christ in Micah 5.5 5, that this one will be our peace. Christ gives us peace. Even though in this world we have tribulation, nevertheless, Christ gives us peace. Christ has overcome the world. And as to his eternal reign, we read those words of the angel Gabriel to Mary in Luke, where he said to her, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. These men, no doubt, seemingly did good work in their day. But they faded from the scene, were only temporary, and the land continued to, to have turmoil. When we get to chapter 13, we'll see the turmoil springing up once again. But in Christ, we have a true and lasting peace. We don't have peace with the world, but we have peace with God. And we're able to live our lives at peace, knowing that we're at peace with God, that we're at peace with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, and we can live confidently knowing that Christ lives and rules and reigns forever. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for, for Christ and uh, for his eternal rule and reign. We praise you that he is ruling even now. Lord, we ask that you would help us to submit to him. We praise you that he is our prophet, priest, and king, that he is that priest according to the order of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Father, we thank you for
Christ, we thank you that he is our peace. Lord, we praise you that he gives us peace. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that we would not be jarred or rattled by the things that jar and rattle this world, but that rather our hearts would be at all times composed, trusting in you, resting in you, even in the midst of difficult circumstances that come upon us. We praise you for Christ. We ask that we would live for him, that we would trust in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.